On this week's episode of High Five L1C, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I interviewed Jonathan Fleece, president and CEO of what is now called Empath Health. Jonathan is a healthcare attorney by training. He sat on Tidewell Hospice's board for up to 10 years until he put his hat in the ring to become president and CEO of Tidewell now with his empath. So please join me as I interview Jonathan Fleece. Hey, I want to jump in real quick. Somebody asked me the other day, what does the Corley company do? Well, we do three things for nonprofits. One, we facilitate meetings. Yes, like board retreats where we discuss governance and strategy with all the members of the board. Number two, advise CEOs and help them as they make decisions and implement actions to drive their mission. And then finally, we produce podcasts such as this one, but also for a number of nonprofits to help you get the word out, get your message out. So if you're interested in any of these services, please feel free to reach out to Michael at thecorleycompany.com. Now back to the podcast. Well, I'm very excited for this week's episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. My guest is a longtime friend, Jonathan Fleece, now president and CEO of Empath Health. Jonathan and I know each other from way back from, from our church days together before we both, both uh, moved and had to go uh, attend different churches. But Jonathan is just a, he's a, he's a healthcare attorney, as I said in the intro, and is now president and CEO. So Jonathan, welcome. And if you would, would you just share a little bit about your background and how you got to become president and CEO of Empath Health? Well, thank you so much, Michael, for having me a part of this this respected and and I know very worthwhile podcast. So it's really a pleasure to be here with you and the audience today. So a little bit about myself and background. Uh, I am the son of a minister and a nurse. So social service sector was part of my my youth and part of my my growing up experience. Uh, I was honored to attend Emory University as an undergraduate and knew sort of early on as a as a young man that I wanted to pursue healthcare in some way, but didn't know exactly how that would fit and feel. So evaluated uh, really various paths for that. New clinical medicine was not really the path. Looked at uh, Masters of Health Administrations programs, looked at law ultimately settled on getting my health law degree and was really uh, very, very honored and privileged to graduate from St. Louis University. And St. Louis University is known for having uh, one of the nation's top health law programs and certainly a, a very proud Billiken for those uh, who might know of, of the slew Billikens out there. Started my career in the healthcare practice, uh, working with large healthcare systems, uh, primarily across the Midwest. Uh, worked on some fairly large integration deals. And then ultimately, my wife and I had a personal tragedy, and that really changed the course of my life. We lost our first daughter to a fatal heart defect. Uh, very, very, very challenging time that ultimately created really a reset opportunity for me and, and for, for my, my wife, Amy, of now 32 years. So we came, quote, home to Florida. I had roots in the Florida area, so, so did she. And I started my own healthcare law practice when we moved here to sort of hit a reset button, grew that uh, to really a statewide uh, platform and uh, sizable healthcare law practice. Uh, coincided with that, authored a book uh, with uh, co-author David Houle, a nationally known futurist, called The New Health Age, uh, Future of Healthcare in America. That book we published in 2010 around the Affordable Care Act. That opened doors to consulting alongside law, 
but really felt like throughout this process that something was missing in my life. So along the way, I started volunteering for Tidewell Hospice at the time. It was a hospice, a not-for-profit in the Sarasota, Manatee, Charlotte, uh, DeSoto County area. And that really changed the trajectory of, of where I now sit today. Worked with that organization as a volunteer board member really put together a strategic plan that include diversifying, growing, expanding. And at some point when the CEO retired, that was sort of my moment to, uh, I think, embark on what is now my life's work. I resigned from the board, put my name in a national search, and then was ultimately selected as, as the CEO. A little bit of a side turn during that journey. We did merge with another organization uh, now called Empath, but it's the new Empath, although we merged with uh, the legacy Empath and did end up holding on to that name. So during that process, I went through a succession plan of their prior CEO. So I've sort of been CEO, stepped back to president, now CEO again, and really we're full steam ahead with continued growth um, at Empath Health. So I'll spend a very brief overview of what is Empath Health, uh, just for the benefit of your audience to sort of know that perspective. Uh, we are a hospice, home health, as well as senior care oriented organization. Uh, we serve about 60,000 people a year now, um, as far north as uh, Ocala, Florida, or more central Florida, all the way down to Naples and the Southwest Florida area. And then in the process of hopefully growing and bringing on a new organization in the Palm Beach and Broward area uh, that will make us the largest uh, not-for-profit hospice in the country. Uh, we'll serve one out of five Floridians uh, when they need hospice care. But we have certainly broadened that, as I've mentioned, to what we call full life care. So it's much more than hospice. It's home-based care that really helps people uh, during advanced serious terminal illness and often post-acute of that. So that may have been more than you wanted, but that's sort of the 56 years of Jonathan Fleece uh, in, in what was that, um, five minutes? <laughs> that's, that's well, well stated, Jonathan. What a, an amazing career you've had. And it certainly didn't even do it justice because I know you better than that, but we just don't have time to get into too many of the details. But it's interesting, as you were talking, two things I want to highlight and ask you about. One, clearly your humility humility this is a big organization i mean this is a whole nother level and for you to step into that role of ceo but going back to tidewell was very very impressive but you said something that may be governance related i want people to listen to you were on the board you expressed an interest in ceo position or you had an interest you resigned from the board threw your hat in the ring so you literally stepped off the board during the search process uh, yeah, so certainly felt like that was appropriate, wanted the board to feel, you know, fully independent and um, and the process to be independent as well. So it was a separate uh, committee that was formed that was a search committee of the board. And then I stepped back from my board responsibility that, you know, certainly did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to make sure if I was the best fit for the CEO position that the organization itself and the community could see that we went through an independent process that was really no different than the other candidates. And it was a very competitive process. They narrowed it down, I think about 150 um, applicants to a pool of 10, and then ultimately a pool of three. And, and then I was one of the finalists. But yeah, I felt like it was important to, to really establish that independence during the process. 
And a lot of people would not have done that. I highlight, I highlight that because a lot of this podcast is about good governance. That is excellent governance and putting the organization ahead of the individual. Uh, sometimes people will not do that. So I commend you for that, Jonathan. And I think uh, ser- certainly that made your selection even that much more valuable, important, because it really meant you were the right person for the job. You were not influencing the decision. So I wanted to note that. So you've been a board member Tidewell, free Empath Health, which is used the Empath Health name, but with Tidewell, and now you're CEO. So can you talk a little bit about comparing and contrasting those roles and responsibilities? I just find that fascinating. Gov- governance, you know, oversight, and now you're the guy re- answering to the board. Just curious how those, if you can compare those roles, please. Sure, happy to do so. You know, it, it's you, you often you've heard that phrase, you don't know what you don't know. And while I certainly took my board uh, responsibilities seriously and had been on the Tidewell, eventually the parent company board and some of our other committees, et cetera, for about 10 years, felt like I knew the organization really well. Shifting into management is absolutely a completely different dimension. And even though looking back for our organization, I truly feel that the board and the prior CEO always had a very harmonious and transparent relationship. I think probably the biggest eye-opener for me is, is the board can truly never know 100% of what's going on day-to-day operationally and, and across the various segments of an organization. So what is that? lesson. I think the lesson is that I cannot underestimate enough how critical the selection process is for the right CEO and also having enough of that oversight, if you will, of the CEO's team that the CEO is ultimately bringing in too. Because you know, organizations as they grow, certainly it's not a one-man ban or one-person ban operation. And having board oversight of the CEO and that leadership team is 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 so important because the board has to have tremendous amount of trust, faith, and confidence in their CEO. So I think that was certainly a big uh, eye opener to me is just what the board doesn't know, and therefore leading to the importance of having trust because there's just too much going on day to day. I think probably the other big shift is you hear it a lot, but until you actually live it and experience it, I think it it means something different in context. And that is that the board's role ultimately is governance, oversight, helping with big picture, you know, strategy, mission, vision, setting sort of the, the foundation for core values. But but it's it's so important, I think, for the board and for the CEO to respect the boundaries between the board's role, governance oversight, versus the CEO's role around operational leadership, decision-making. Certainly, it's important to have accountability and connectivity to the board, but ultimately, the operational leadership and management responsibilities is, is, is the CEO's, and respecting those boundaries is super important. Well, very good. I can only imagine that transition, and probably was drinking from a fire hose and maybe continues to be that way. So an organization your size, if you could share the numbers that you can, you said 60,000 people that you serve, but number of employees and revenue, if you're able to share that. Sure. What do you need from a board? You're the CEO. What do you need and hope and expect from a board of directors? 
Sure. So little sort of facts and, and um, data about, about MPEP health. So from a gross revenue perspective, we're in our, our fiscal year 24 already. Uh, we're on the Medicare uh, fiscal year, which is October to September. So we have a $380 million gross revenue budget for fiscal year 24. If we are able to bring the organization together over in the Palm Beach, uh, Fort Lauderdale area, we will top 500 million um, will be our annual revenue by the end of the year. So I'll talk through sort of where our current state is pre-integration there. So 380 without the East Coast expansion, uh, 380 million. We employ about 3,000 colleagues today and have close to 3,000 volunteers, which certainly is, is very important for not-for-profits to plug into that volunteer uh, community as well. So that's a little bit of the data, data metrics for us. And then shifting to um, really what can a CEO really value and benefit from the most with their board relationship. So first, I think it's really important that, that the CEO and the board are aligned and, and communicate regularly what, what's the vision and mission and strategic direction for the, for the company. Uh, we are a, a follower of the John Doerr, um, sort of um, manage what matters and measure what matters philosophy. John Doerr was certainly a famous um, and well-regarded leader for companies like Google and Intel and others. So we build our entire strategic plan off of the John Doerr uh, OKR system, which stands for objectives, goals, setting sort of under that strategic plan, and then measuring those key results all the way down from your organizational top level down to your, um, your front level management. So it's, it's mission critical that all of those are in line between the CEO and, and the board and, and the board rather. You know, what are your top level objectives? What are your top level goals that you're trying to get to? I think once you accept that harmonious um, relationship and make sure that the strategic plan is certainly embraced and supported by the board, then you really move into ensuring that your board supports giving you the resource allocation that the organization needs to achieve those objectives and to hit your key results. So getting resource allocated um, and uh, resource all allocation is, is mission critical for, for a board relationship. That sort of, I think, coincides with making sure that, um, that the board and the CEO and leadership team is that, that, that we are all aligned with resource um, uh, and fiscal responsibility decisions. So certainly the CEO does need some financial responsibility and authority but it needs to be in lockstep with, with the board because the CEO certainly should never step outside of those boundaries, if you will, of, of, of what the board's comfortable from a fiscal responsibility perspective. So making sure that the budgets are approved and we stay within those budgets, that's a big one. Uh, policy and governance, you know, that's generally certainly something that the board uh, would set and making sure that the CEO and leadership team stays within policies and governance. Um, evaluation and feedback. Uh, we're right here at the beginning of a fiscal year, end of our, our last fiscal. So we just recently here at Empath finished our annual review cycle. Uh, my reviews are done by the executive committee every year. I think getting that performance evaluation and feedback is, is super helpful. 
we do that through a pretty objective survey process, uh, which, which I certainly support. Uh, advocacy networking across the uh, community and, and in the state or nation, depending upon the size, that's a great board uh, responsibility. Uh, helping with stakeholder relationships to uh, open communication. And then ultimately, while I certainly don't have any plans to retire soon, having that succession planning is, is always important. So an organization our size, but really frankly, any size, uh, I do have a named uh, successor in both an emergency situation. So the board always knows who I would designate to sort of be the interim CEO of something urgent or um, unexpected were to happen with me and my abilities to serve. So succession planning certainly is a big deal. And then certainly at the point where I might be closer to that retirement phase, uh, certainly as an organization grows, it's it's important that you have succession planning ahead of time. So uh, we like to do that, frankly, up to two years in advance of, of a planned retirement. I threw a lot out. There are probably more, but I'll, I'll pause there, Michael, and see if you want me to keep going or have questions. Well, I think that's really important. Everything that you said, very important for an organization on your side. I want to I zero in on something that always seems to be uh, quite a balancing act, and that's communication between you and the board, you and committees. I, do you have a structured communication approach, Jonathan? Is it do you talk to the board chair whenever? How, how do you approach that? Because you're a super busy guy. So how do you keep all that, your arms around it, and also ensure to uh, back and forth communication with the board? I'm a believer that whether it's board communications, colleague communications, community communications, that that the lack of communication can often be that, you know, the root of all evil. So I, I'm a believer we can't over communicate. Uh, in fact, I have a running joke with the organization and the colleagues until they tell me that they are sick of hearing it. Every meeting we open with a recitation of mission, vision, values. And, and until everybody across the organization is just so tired of hearing it, um, you know, we're going to keep doing it because I think communicating is just so mission critical to building the culture and uh, uh, the foundation fabric, if you will, of, of, of the organization's heartbeat. So that sort of as a sort of a, um, a comprehensive philosophy of mine, when I came in as the new Empath CEO, uh, which frankly, I'm about to celebrate my, my one year anniversary, there was a whole plan. Uh, we called it Building the Future, and the plan was very uh, well both thought out, but written out and methodical, so that over my first year as CEO, we had constant uh, check-ins on, on what the Building the Future plan looked like as, as a new CEO under, under new leadership. So we do it through those kind of formats, uh, whether it be for a written special project oriented, but probably stepping back at a higher level. Uh, we believe annual meetings are very, very important. Um, we do those now with the size and scale more in a hybrid environment. So some people can be in person, but we have the technology and resources where people can come in through hybrid environments. But annual meetings are really important sort of state of the union, if you will, then on a quarterly basis, we have what we call our quarterly affiliate reports with so many different entities and different service lines and different leaders across each of these service lines. We always want to make sure on a quarterly basis 
that we're reporting out how we're doing on our objectives and key results. So we report that out quarterly. Then we also have quarterly board meetings, generally have bi-monthly executive committee meetings. Um, that's the chairman, vice chairman, past chairman, and the um, and the treasurer of, of, the, of the board and the corporation with me. So we're all we're doing that on a bi-monthly basis, try to alternate that in between regular meetings. Certainly lots of committees. Uh, I don't always attend the committees. Certainly some of the management team can have responsibility for some of the board committees. Uh, I'm a big believer in online digital communications. I do a lot of email communication and then um, and then special meetings that can be just with the chair, executive committee, or even full full board ad hoc as needed. So very intentional. Your communication is very intentional. And I share that with clients that it can't be haphazard. haphazard. We just, we're all just too busy. You've got to develop a plan and be very intentional to ensure that the communication aligns from the top and the bottom, because it's not just going to happen. Completely agree. In fact, every year we even will send out surveys to the board to try to always stay in touch with what times do they prefer to have meetings? Because you can often get different opinions there. We try to, you know, get a enough of a statistical sampling of preference to set the times for the meeting, the frequency of the meetings. Some now are all in person, but most of them are are hybrid. A few of them, especially on the committee side, we've kept completely remote through Zoom after the pandemic and getting used to that kind of format. But yeah, we're very intentional about it. Set the schedule well in advance of each year. And then we're advocates, and I don't mean to be endorsing any prod products, but we're advocates too of having online resources that can help the board, both from a meeting perspective, but also have access to information. So we use Board Effect uh, and everything sort of goes through Board Effect as our portal. So calendars for meetings, all the documents, even for prior meetings, they can get access to it, our bylaws, things like that, policies, charters, all of that's online to really give, give the tools to the board. Very good. Let me let me change direction a, a little bit, because there's always talk about in, in the world, we got too many nonprofits, they ought to merge. Well, you've been through well, at least one, now possibly another nonprofit. And oftentimes, when, when there's a hiccup, it's because of board dynamics. And how do you bring two boards together? How do you have those discussions and integrate those? So having experienced it and having, of course, experienced it in previous life as an attorney, could you outline some best practices and nonprofit board integration? Maybe even weaving some stuff that y'all did and maybe would do differently. <laughs> yes. So I I don't think I had any of these gray hairs, by the way, um, <laughs> before we started all of these growth initiatives and coming together, because, I, I, you know, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge and and really affirm it, it, it's hard. I, it, merging not-for-profit or consolidating not-for-profits, bringing not-for-profit organizations together very, very hard. And having that experience, as you mentioned, both as a healthcare, a prior healthcare attorney and consultant, doing a lot of integration deals as a profession and seeing it on the for-profit side compared to not-for-profit, I, I would venture to say it, it's it's more challenging, generally speaking, on the not-for-profit side than it is the for-profit side. And I think there's several reasons to, to really um, support that. 
One is oftentimes not-for-profits, especially successful ones, they're so deeply rooted in the communities and they have such amazing board members that are committed to the mission, committed to the organization, dedicated to the community. So the concept of how are we gonna create something new? How are we gonna bring two community organizations together, sometimes in the same community, sometimes different communities with different values or different focuses? How are we gonna bring this together and create create something new? It, it's just, it's emotional. There's, there's a lot of, of just, of, of that emotion. There's a lot of that loyalty. There's a lot of that sort of sense of pride and, and, and board connection to the organization that just makes it harder. And I certainly don't want to imply that, you know, that humans are, are always um, money motivated, but I, I do believe when you compare that to the for-profits, Usually in a merger, acquisition, or some sort of an affiliation, there's a big paycheck involved. And, and that's a driver of getting things done and can sometimes, I'm not saying it takes all the emotions out of a transaction, but when you've got a buyer and a seller in a for-profit environment and there's going to be a big paycheck at, at the closing table, that's a driver to get stuff done. Whereas in a not-for-profit world, it, it, it's it's more intrinsic, it's more emotional, if you will, and I, and I think that whole complexity adds adds a lot. Just picking the Empath name when when our Legacy Tidewell organization came together with what was Legacy Suncoast and and Empath is sort of the the parent system name. Just the name selection was was super super hard for for us to. I think analyze and 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 get uh, consensus around. So, so those are I think some some big some big differences. But at the end of the day, what what I would always encourage your audience, not for profit members, to to remember and and take heart um, of is is the why. You know why are the organizations coming together? And and if the why is for the right reasons, which ultimately is to better serve the community, better serve the mission, better ensure the financial success, sometimes viability of the organization. If that's your why, then you're you can't ignore the noise, you can't ignore these other issues, but but bring the organization back to that why because that that's what we continue to do, continue to do even today is 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 why we're doing this. And, and we're doing this to preserve the not-for-profit hospice home-based care mission for the communities. And if, if we don't continue to grow, our 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 sector and healthcare is is really um, getting harder and harder to to survive. And and when you when the the merger was even posited, whoever brought it up, I so I'm thinking through the machinations. You you've got to work with your board chair. I assume it's you two representing the initial discussions, and the, and then and Suncoast in this case, same the CEO and board chair. So, so you have those discussions. Then at some point, you let the board know. Can you just you know, lift up the tent a little bit so we can see what, what was that like? Do you recall? I mean, what were the conversations oh, sure. and then where'd you go from there? Sure. So you've outlined it, I think, um, very well from a, I think a best practice, if you will, perspective, you, you know, the CEO board chair relationship is, is, is very, very important to, to, um, 
support and and make sure that is is strong. We have a two-year term for board chairs. I think that's important just to give enough longevity, if you will, to building the relationship and then um, sort of performing under that relationship. So we we have two-year board chair terms. And, and then we did build a middle layer in as well through our growth and integration processes, and that's with the executive committee. So we we really would sort of go in that order first making sure that the that the ceos and the board chairs were all aligned then we would loop in our executive committees that's generally again as i mentioned the either the current chair vice chair or past and or past chair with then another officer or secretary treasurer so we would have our executive committees and then we would use that group to then sort of go out and make sure that we had broader board alignment um, for for the integration opportunity. So there is a balance because you know, we currently now have a 12-person uh, board, and eventually we'll probably get that to 15, so it's not an even number, although thankfully we've never had to deal with a tie vote. But, but we have a 12-member board now, and certainly even at a 12-member board, at the parent level, because we also have affiliate boards, but at the parent level, it's impossible to be effective in transactions and in coming together with 12 voices. So it, it's it's important to have that sort of unification and consensus at the chair level, then your executive committee level, then you broaden it out. Did our board agree on every single principle, every single term? Of course not. So I think ultimately it's not about having 100% unanimity on decisions. It's more about getting that consensus where everybody can at least support it enough to move forward versus having a board member or more that would just outright veto it. So we fortunately never got to those, but that was sort of our, our process. Oh boy, I could do a whole day interview on that. I just find that absolutely intriguing. Thank you for for sharing that. That gives us some insight. And anybody out there who's interested in, in, in merging organizations, uh, that's a solid approach. So, so Jonathan, a little bit your background. And I want to tap into this before we end the the interview. You were an attorney. You worked for a number of for-profit healthcare companies. You watched as CEOs ran those organizations. You're a CEO of a nonprofit. Are there major differences between, at the end of the day, running the organization, a nonprofit and a for-profit? So I'm asked that question a lot, and I think it's a it's a it's a fabulous question. So here's how I always answer this: I believe that that an organization's tax status does not define good from great, failure from average. It's not whether you're for profit or not for profit or your tax status. I think. Ultimately, there are examples of great for-profit organizations, very solid mission, vision, and values, very active in the community, great cultures, and, and certainly, you know, same for not-for-profit. Certainly, we hold empath in, in high regard there. But you can look to the other end of the spectrum, and they're, they're poor, poorly run and operated and managed for-profits and poorly run and operated not-for-profits. So, I really don't believe that the that tax status is sort of what defines good from great or or average from poor, because 
because of this reason. At the end of the day, and Michael, you and I certainly have used this phrase together in other contexts, without a margin, there is no mission for any organization, regardless of your tax status. I think the differences ultimately root in when there is margin that successful companies really need to produce, where does that margin go? And, and fundamentally behind that is who does the organization answer to? Who is the fiduciary um, duty obligated to? And certainly the, the fundamental difference is in a for-profit, your fiduciary obligations are to re return investor uh, dollars, you know, shareholder dividends or um, partnership returns. So it's ultimately who you answer to that is the fundamental difference. Compare the for-profit then to not-for-profit, ultimately not-for-profits, we answer to the community. You know, by being tax exempt, on you know, all of our assets as well as our income, we have a charitable obligation to then answer to the community and serve those charitable needs. So at the end of the day, it really fundamentally boils down to who do you answer to. We have to and do answer to the community to make sure we're fulfilling our charitable purpose, providing charity care, providing um, programmatic supports to areas of the community that may be underserved, ensuring access to healthcare that maybe sometimes the for-profits don't always focus on because they may not have revenue associated with it. And that's sort of the big difference is we answer to the community, for-profits answer to investors. And um, and, and I would, would sort of say that's, that's the big difference. But at the end of the day, both organizations have to have a margin or we won't survive and thrive. Well stated. That was the best explanation I've heard. Thank you for sharing that. So before we go, one last question, Jonathan. And so as you moved into this role, what's been the biggest learning curve for you? Biggest learning curve, I think, has probably been driven by external factors. And that is the ability to be malleable, adaptable, flexible, and 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 embrace change. You know, none of us know sometimes when we take on opportunities what the future is going to bring. And I certainly never ever want to put myself in the categories of you know the historical um, leaders that we all have learned about and read about that faced you know global challenges. You know, the Winston Churchill's of the world with World War II and um, U.S. presidents that, you know, certainly too have faced economic meltdowns and, and other, you know, just earth changing and global changing events. But, but I came into this organization and within the first 12 to 18 months, we were facing a global pandemic through COVID-19. We deliberately decided to continue on with our growth, continue on with our merger, and frankly, we ended up having to do much of that over Zoom without even meeting in person, which was a whole new experience. So I think probably the biggest learning curve for me, and I, I, I would think this is true for many of your audience and, and maybe society as a whole, is, is we just need to be adaptable to change. That's just the reality of the global world that we're living in. And if we 
if we resist change or if we reject change and if we don't stay open-minded to all of the changes that are going on around us and make sure that we as leaders aren't leading the organization with the change and to take advantage of the change and to seize the opportunity. Because what the world looks like today <laughs> will be potentially completely different tomorrow and certainly will be very different next month and next year. So that's probably been my biggest learning curve is just adaptability and being open to rapid change. Jonathan Felice, ladies and gentlemen, president and CEO of Empath Health. Today, a $380 million organization. Tomorrow, probably closer to a half billion with well over 3,000 employees. Jonathan, you have been a blessing to our community. I'm so glad you moved into this role and you really gave up a career to do it. You're humble and it is much appreciated. And thank you for being a guest on this podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. I'll end with a great Mark Twain quote. Um, the two most important days of our lives, the day we were born and the day we learn why, it's just a blessing and a privilege to know why I was born and, and I'm doing what I was meant to do and why I was born. So it, it's fulfilling every day. So thank you for having me and blessings to your audience too. All right, we just heard from Jonathan Fleece, and now we've got Recapping with Reed. Reed's three observations, if you can limit it to three, because that was just packed with information. Reed, what stuck out to you? Yeah, so as we go through these interviews, I take notes and I try to highlight what I want to talk about afterwards. And almost the entire notes is highlighted for me right now. But I want to start with um, Jonathan stepping off of the board during the hiring process to make sure that the process was truly independent and that he had no influence on if he would be end up getting that role as CEO. Yeah. And just think about how that set the tone for trust in the organization. People watch that. There are a lot of people that would not have stepped off the board to do that. And people have thought something was shady. So I commend him for that because he could have been out of a volunteer board position. Perhaps they would have taken him back or he could have you know, re-enlisted, so to speak. But uh, I commend him for that because that sets the tone for how he's going to operate. Number two, Reed. So Jonathan said the board's role is governance oversight, big picture vision, but it's so important for the board and the CEO to respect the boundaries. So the board sticks with oversight and the CEO sticks with the role in operational leadership. Yeah. And sometimes those lines do blur a little bit because it's subject to interpretation. So talk about it. Establish a boundaries, a guidelines for how we're going to operate if you're the board and the board chair and the CEO, because there is a concern that there might be some creep, if you will. I mean, a lot of times it's honest and not intentionally to be anything uh, alternative to that. So number three, Reed. And number three is going to be about succession planning. So I thought it was really interesting that Jonathan does have a named successor in an emergency situation. But in the situation in which he knows he's going to retire, he knows that he's going to give about a two-year runway for the organization to find that next successor. So the actual succession plan for that is not made yet, but he knows the timeline that he needs to give, and then they'll develop the plan for hiring that next CEO. Sure, and they're already talking about it, but certainly every organization will have a succession. If if the CEO or the executive director, director gets hit by a bus, who's going to run it? And it may be the board chair steps in for a second, should resign from the board if to do that, if, depending on the size of the organization, or it could be somebody else in the senior leadership roles, but that should be defined because in the heat of the moment, when emotions are high and there's sadness, if something were to happen, you don't want to have to be thinking through that process. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, recapping with Reed, his three observations. I don't know how he limited it to three, but he did a good job with that. And so 
We will see you next week on the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. <laughs>